Good evening to you. My name is Josh Cannon. Over the course of doing this podcast, I have been able through one way or another to reach out to people who have appeared or worked on the show Unsolved Mysteries. Some of our listeners already know this and have enjoyed the previous full episodes me and Mike have done, where I intersperse the interview into the usually hour and 45 minute long podcast. I felt, though, like these interviews are so good and so rare that I was able to talk to somebody who appeared on Unsolved Mysteries that they deserve their own place in our podcast catalog. So this is a series of just the interviews that I did with the people who lived through the murders, hauntings, conspiracy, and even someone who worked on the set of Unsolved Mysteries. I apologize in advance for the varying audio quality in each of these interviews. Most of the people I interviewed could only talk over the phone, so I did the best with what I had. We'll start this off with Don Devereaux. He was a key interview for the Danny Casalero murder. Danny Casalero was a rogue journalist who investigated what was known as the octopus, which could have potentially implicated top-ranking government officials in many of the high-level scandals of the 1980s. When Danny Casalero's body was found in a hotel, police ruled it as a suicide, which remains a highly controversial ruling to this day. Don Devereaux knew Danny Casalero, and as a result of Don's own investigations, he became a target for the Phoenix, Arizona mob. A hit was put out on Don Devereaux, but because of a critical blunder on the part of the mob, Devereaux's neighbor, Doug Johnston, was killed instead. Devereaux's life was spared. Here's my interview with Don Devereaux. All right, so before this starts, um, the phone, when the recording cuts in, I basically was talking to Don about the mistaken hit segment that he was featured in where Doug Johnston was killed instead of Don. And I basically asked him, um, so the segment ends with Robert Stack saying, Don Devereaux has recorded sources from a number of credible people that say he's next. How has your life been since that segment? And we kind of go from there. So have fun. Well, I had I had some sense uh, at the time we did that uh, that quick segment on Unsolved Mysteries that that uh, uh, I was under surveillance. I mean, it was quite obvious that there was somebody sort of stalking me, and uh, so I had to take the warnings pretty seriously. I had been called by the uh, the bureau chief for the San Francisco Chronicle in in Washington. Uh, who had an, a CIA source who had warned him to warn me, and I had been contacted also by Israeli military intelligence by a colonel in the Amman who was a source of mine who had CIA connections to warn me I had a problem. So I, I took it seriously, and I could physically tell that there was there were people cruising my <laughs> my, my driveway. Uh, I was being sort of watched. Um, and right after we got that little blurb on that that first blurb on the air when Stack went on. Uh, before we did the broadcast on, on uh, Doug Johnson, we did a little warning. Uh, Unsolved Mysteries was very quick to note that uh, I might have a problem and that they would obviously be very upset if something happened to me. And kind of a warning that, you know, not not a good idea to do anything. And right. Very quickly, the, the surveillance and all that kind of stuff seemed to go away. And uh, basically, if there was anything coming in my direction, it seems to have been uh, brought to a halt uh, by the the, the, the scrutiny that that unsolved mysteries happily was uh, was providing to the situation at that time. So nothing happened. I mean, I, I, the problem was sort of disappeared. Um, the homicide became an open case. Uh, I don't think the Phoenix Police Department was ever comfortable with the notion that it might have been an agency-related shooting. I think they found that very difficult to get their get their head around. Um, and I can't be absolutely certain what happened. I just know that the guy got shot. It had all the earmarks of an agency hit. It was a, a 25 caliber, a back of the left ear, single shot, classic right. agency kill. It shuts down the autonomic nervous system immediately. I saw photographs of the guy that was killed, and I cut myself worse shaving, and, and he bled from that one. Yeah. He just died quickly. Um, it had all the earmarks of an agency uh, hit. Probably if it was an agency yet, it was a rogue agency yet. I don't think it was planned by the Director of Central Intelligence. I think it was conducted, if it was that at all, uh, by some guys locally here who were involved in the in the, uh, in the guns and drugs business. It was happening out of a place called Firebird Lake, a little airstrip south of Phoenix. 
and I've been poking around down there, and I think I basically angered some folks, and uh, somebody got concerned enough to pay me a visit. Wow. Uh, and I think I was just lucky, you know, just just uh, lucky. Uh, the guy that was uh, shot was at at uh, an address right across the street from mine. My my street number ended in three. Uh, his number ended in eight. And if you write a, you can easily write a three and an eight that look very much alike. Right. And I used to get mail from his side of the street, and I'm sure he got occasional mail from my side of the street. And I think what happened is the shooter simply was in the wrong place. And this guy drove a car that looked just like mine, had facial hair like I did, and I think he was just very unlucky. Gosh, that does yeah. suck. Yeah. Sucks for that so, guy. Yeah, I think it had nothing to do with anything. And, uh, you know, uh, all these years later, there's been no more to tell about it. Um, I was so, warned... I was warned afterwards by um, somebody in uh, Israeli intelligence in Mossad, who had a base here in Phoenix, to quit doing that particular investigation. And I took the warning seriously. And uh, I basically backed off what I had been doing at the time. The Mossad guy told me that that, uh, whatever I was looking at was way above my pay grade. There was nothing I could you know, do to impact whatever was going on in terms of illegal activity at that airstrip, and that uh, all I could do was get myself hurt. Wow. And, um, I couldn't change anything. Uh, he asked me rather pointedly if I had a wife and kids, and he told me to get my priorities straight and not to uh, you know, be a, uh, a kamikaze pilot down there being reckless. And uh, I didn't take it as a warning. I took it as a, I mean, I took it as a warning, not a threat. I didn't think he was uh, anything other than just being friendly. But I, I had to concur with him from what I was looking at, that uh, uh, that was not the smartest place for me to be poking around. I'd been run out of that airstrip twice, once by a truck, once by a helicopter when I was poking around down there. And they obviously had my plates, and they knew where I lived. And, and uh, you know, I was up against something that was a lot more formidable than I could really do anything about. So, so did... As far as the uh, investigations that that you and uh, you, you mentioned on the segment, uh, Dan Casalero, who, who's another guy that we've done uh, our podcast segment on, um, did, did y'all's research into, um, for instance, he was researching uh, what he called the octopus, and uh, mm-hmm. I know he was uh, requesting information from you at one point. Did, did any of that uh, research into, uh, like, the CIA and the Department of Justice uh, corruption and all that with the gold bullion and all. Did any of that ever come to fruition? Were there any ever any arrests or indictments made as a result of of that? Research? No, the, the 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 gold stuff that I was looking at pretty much happened in Arizona between the years uh, 1972 to roughly 1985, 73 to 85, maybe about a 12 year period. By the time I found out it was happening, it was over. So it, it, you know, it had been pretty much culminated by the time I even became aware that it had been going on. The, the 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 gold moving out of Southeast Asia pretty much had completed moving by '85, okay. and 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 uh, uh, so you know, and it probably probably pretty much had had been dissipated in the in the bullion black market long before I even became aware that it had been going on as a as a reality here at all. So, no, nothing ever happened. It was a situation involving, you know, high-level U.S. government involvement, and and uh, the agency was basically uh, acquiring uh, a source of funding they didn't have to go to Congress for. Uh, there was around $200 billion in play, uh, in billion coming out of both Vietnam and, and later the Philippines, uh, that had been stashed by the Japanese at the end of the Second World War. Oh, wow. And, uh, this was all the all the the gold booty that the Japanese had looted all over Southeast Asia from temples and all kinds of stuff. And toward the end of the Second World War, the Japanese buried it. Uh, they buried some of it in uh, in Vietnam around Cameron Bay. They buried uh, lots of it in a number of locations in the Philippine Islands. Uh, General Yamashita was the Japanese general in the Philippines, and so they stashed away what was back in those days a couple hundred billion in in, in bullion. And the OSS, the precursor of the CIA, got the Japanese burial maps uh, at the end of the Second World War. 
So the intelligence community had some idea where this stuff was and roughly probably how much there was. And uh, toward the end of the Vietnam War, uh, they began moving it out of Cameron Bay and they began moving it out of the Philippines over a longer period than that. The stuff coming out of Vietnam largely went through the Philippines as well. And eventually it all came back to the States where it was uh, processed and converted into commercial gold ingots and sold on the international black market. Much of it ending up in uh, in Switzerland, in, in Cloton, which is an airport near Zurich. There's a there's a large gold depository like a Fort Knox under that airport that's used internationally by all kinds of people to store vast amounts of, uh, of bullion. And once the gold gets there, it pretty much stays there. The paper may change in terms of who owns it, but the gold pretty much sits there at uh, Cloton. And uh, I was able to trace from the stuff I was looking at that that's where a lot of the gold was going. Um, but no, nothing nothing ever happened. The, the the records that I ended up with, I ended up with some of Morgan's records, which the government didn't know. I may not know until you broadcast it that I actually have them. Uh, the the uh, I have some records that the government didn't confiscate when they confiscated Morgan's office records after he was after he was killed. Uh, he had stashed a small amount of records, kind of a cross section at another location, and I have that that collection of stuff. And the the gold was being sold in the black market, either to law firms or banks, uh, both of them both of whom have have client privilege in terms of uh, divulging who they were buying the stuff for. And uh, so I have no idea who the clients were. I suspect they're multinational rich people, uh, you know, a consortium of, of uh, the world's upper 1% were investing in, in bullion uh, and doing it uh, in the black market. The stuff was being sold at, at X number of points below New York or London closing because it was black market stuff. So it was cheaper to buy the black market bullion than it was to buy it legal, just enough of an incentive that they probably had no trouble selling it. And um, it, you know it's it's done by the time, and it was sold in huge amounts. The biggest single shipment that I saw was was five thousand metric tons in one deal. Oh my gosh! I, I saw I saw some some one some one metric ton deals and lots of one million ounce deals. Um, they were wheeling and dealing in, in volumes that you just you know almost can't imagine uh, as this stuff was being moved. From, ultimately from Asia through the United States, basically to Europe. What strikes me about all this information is that these are things that, you know, the average everyday person assumes is happening, but, we you know, we have no proof. We have no uh, solid evidence of it. We just have kind of these, uh, you know, notions that this kind of clandestine stuff is going on, and obviously if uh, any kind of government-level uh, officials were involved in this, then, I mean, from what you were saying in the uh, segment, uh, that it was, you know, not under an official capacity. It was all a clandestine operation. So that's, that's well, just... Well, there, 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 there was a faction within the national security establishment that was uh, very hawkish. And, and, you know, back in the 80s, there were as many as like seven little wars going on in Angola and all over the place where uh, the U.S. government was backing uh, uh, folks that were fighting insurgencies or governments they didn't like. And the agency appreciated having an opportunity to have a, a bank account, if you will, that they didn't have to go to Congress to explain. So the, the notion of having a, a black bag fund, a slush fund of that magnitude to conduct you know, military adventurism in various places without congressional oversight was a very attractive idea, and it certainly lasted for a while. It was quite a bit of money. Um, but, yeah, they were they were doing it, but it was not – you know, it was not official policy. You simply had you had segments in the national security establishment in defense and in CIA and other places that supported this kind of thing. Uh, I don't know how much you know. Some people in the National Security Council certainly knew. I would have to imagine in the in the 80s that Ronald Reagan didn't have a clue. Uh, a lot of the stuff was going on probably right around him and under him without his knowledge. Um, but it was uh, a lot of money, hell of a lot of money. And uh, people got killed, sticking their noses in it, and uh, I can understand that. When you're talking about 200 billion dollars, uh, it's a lot of it's a lot of loot. Right. So there, there was there was jeopardy attached if anybody was you know stupid enough to to uh, to mess with it. Had I messed with it while it was actually going on, I might not have survived. Would be my best guess. But by the time I was looking at it, it was done. I mean, there was a limited amount of damage I could do. Right. 
and uh, I don't think you know, I'm, I'm almost surprised that anybody even bothered to, to mess with me at all. I think it was an overreaction on the part of you know somebody's part. But as far as Danny Cappellaro goes, he he was kind of getting into it. Um, Danny Danny was Danny was in a very dangerous spot, and Danny Danny was very reckless. Uh, Danny was the kind of guy who uh, didn't tell people what he was doing, didn't tell people where he was going, traveled with his files, didn't want to leave them at home where somebody could steal them. Well, he didn't realize how easy it was to steal them when he had them with him. Right. When he was when he was killed in Martinsburg, West Virginia, I mean, all of his files disappeared. He had a briefcase and an accordion file full of stuff with him there, and it's all gone. Uh, whatever Danny was doing uh, disappeared, you know, with his with his death. Uh, he was. Danny was so anxious to be kind of a lone wolf star, to make it big, to do something splashy, that he wouldn't have to share with anybody else, that he kept everything very much close to the vest. And that's a very dangerous way to play when you're messing around with uh, the kind of things that he was looking into. Uh, he was he was very careless at that level. I didn't know him very well. I mean, we had one you know lengthy phone conversation. That's it. And uh, he wanted me to ship him everything I could be willing to ship him on the gold stuff I was looking at. And I was just about to put it in the mail when I heard on the radio he was uh, he was dead, so I didn't send it. Uh, what what do you suspect? Uh, if you have to guess, what what would you, what do you suspect that he um, was was he just like naming names as far as like the conclusion of his research, you know, of, of pointing the finger at you know certain people who were involved. Danny Danny had a high level source in at an at an IRS facility in Martinsburg. I don't know who the source was, and I don't know what he was getting from the source, but that's why he was there, and uh, and that probably had something to do with why he was killed. Uh, I don't know exactly what he was after, but he was working the octopus. He was working it. He saw the gold stuff I was looking at as just one of the tentacles of that octopus, and he was uh, you know busily working on it. He planned to go out to California. I know. Um, to do some work uh, out there at a, uh, on an Indian reservation where there was some hanky panky going on, and he had he had he had a game plan. Uh, he didn't share it all with me. He didn't share it with many people, uh, but he obviously was careless enough that whoever he was going after had a pretty good idea what he was doing, and, and uh, uh, I think he paid for it. I'm pretty sure he was he was a homicide victim. Yeah, not much, yeah, not well, much question about that. It certainly appears that way from. Uh all the details that they uh they, they post on the segment. That was like that was the conclusion that we came to anyway for sure, given the details of his death and everything. Um yeah that's Well the, that's, the fact that his files disappeared, the fact that, you know, the bathroom was partly tidied up. Um and somebody did mop up some blood on the floor of the bathroom with a towel. He obviously didn't do that. There were bruises on his head. He was had some fingernails torn like he'd been resisting something. Uh, had had there really been a careful scrutiny of that as, a, as an autopsy, uh, things might have been learned. But you know he was cremated pretty quickly, uh, and um, there was never really a serious uh, uh, autopsy done. That he'd been embalmed before his brother could even get in, into the body to do even whatever autopsy was was remotely possible after after embalming. So. Um, no, it was it was obviously a covered up violent death of some sort, and then all of his stuff disappeared. So you know that tells you something in and of itself. Those files didn't just walk away by themselves. Yeah, and obviously those things are probably uh, long gone by now. I would assume. Uh, whatever they were, I mean, we you know all we know is in is very general terms of what Danny was doing, but I don't know the details of what he had. And uh, but he was quite excited when he talked to me. He was certainly not suicidal. He was uh, a guy with a mission. You know, he was on his way to some big story, and uh, quite quite worked up about it. Actually, um, uh, I would would have loved to know what he had, but yeah, we'll never know. So but, uh, you feel I, I don't, you feel I don't like, work that way. Yeah. Um, so you you feel like as far as. Um, you know all the kind of the threats that were coming against you. You kind of feel like uh, the visibility of Unsolved Mysteries at the time, because you know at the time Unsolved Mysteries was one of the top-rated shows. It was very visible by a lot of people. You feel like the fact that uh, that they kind of covered the case and kind of made it 
made you somebody in the public eye that, you know, well, we yeah. can't just stuff this guy out because too many people will know now. You kind of feel like that's what, what kind of helped you well, out. Well, when, when, I, when, I, when, I when I was warned by Israeli intelligence uh, that I had a problem, um, they told me that the next time around it wasn't going to be a shooting. It would be a crime of opportunity was the way it was phrased that I'd be the victim of a hit-and-run or a mugging or something that would make it look like it was just a random event. Oh, wow. And, uh, but Unsolved Mysteries made it very clear that if that happened, they would not accept that. That uh, whatever happened to me, however it happened, they would look upon it as, as uh, a deliberate, you know, crime related to the work I've been doing. And I think I think the, the, putting that out at the time with the audience that they had um, had a lot to do with, uh, with putting a lid on it. I also think the fact that that people like the San Francisco Chronicle and others were aware from their own sources of the problem. It just made it clear that if anybody was going to do anything, that they weren't going to, they weren't going to be able to do it as easily as maybe they had thought they could. And I think that took the uh, the pressure off. And because it probably was a rogue operation to begin with, there may have been pressures within the agency itself to you know put a lid on it. Uh, but whatever happened, the problem very quickly and very conspicuously went away after after the initial uh, warning. Because right after this happened and I got the warnings, I flew out to Burbank. And even before the segment we did on, on Doug Johnson was aired, uh, they did a you know a couple-minute segment the following Wednesday uh, just as a, as a warning to whoever was messing with me just to back the hell off. And, and uh, I think that worked. I think it was uh, effective. Oh, yeah, I would have liked to have seen those. I haven't, yeah, I, I, I'm sure that was something that they just, aired at the time and that you probably can't find on TV anymore or on the internet or whatever. Uh, that would have been been a nice little uh, follow-up. Yeah, I, I, prob- I probably even have a VHS copy of that someplace in my in my office. I have no idea. So long ago, I can't remember. But it was just a an ad hoc blurb. They flew me out. They I, you know, they put me in a suit, put me on a stool, and uh, interviewed me for a couple of minutes and put it on the air and stack and some others said a few things and that was it. It was all very quick. And... Um, and I had played the tapes for them that I, I had taped the contact I had with the Chronicle and with Israeli intelligence, so they had both tapes to listen to. And uh, they were pretty clear um, that uh, there was a problem, you know, floating around, that I had pissed some people off, and uh, people were uh, concerned about it. So well, uh, I, I was surprised. Well, I was very uh, happy to learn when I uh search you on the internet that you are still alive and well and i'm sure everyone's doing fine I'm doing <laughs> everyone fine. listening is happy to know that as well so so what i mean i i saw your uh the letter that got sent to me it's got all kind of all the things that you've uh done and you can find this information on your website too um what what have you been uh kind of working on like since that time, I mean, I, uh, I have the letter. I can read it, but... Um, I've worked on a bunch of stuff. I worked on a, on the second and third edition of a book called Mary's Mosaic on the murder of Mary Pinchot Meyer in, in Georgetown back in 1964. She was uh, John Kennedy's girlfriend, a serious girlfriend. Uh, Georgetown, was, as in uh, Jim Jones's... Uh, uh, Georgetown in the sense of Washington, D.C. Oh, oh, I got you. Okay. Uh, suburb of Washington. She was a wealthy lady, and, and uh, she was Ben Bradley's sister-in-law. And she was the last two or three years of John Kennedy's life. Uh, she was his serious lady friend. Had he survived the presidency, he and Mary Pinchot probably would have married at some point. She was the ex-wife of Cord Meyer, who was a top-level CIA official, and she knew who Kennedy was angering, what and what he was doing uh, at the time, and she knew pretty much if he was killed, you know, who did it. And when the Warren Commission report came out, she threatened to go public with what she knew, and she was killed uh, within a week or two uh, in Georgetown and uh, silenced. And uh, obviously the same people were behind it as were behind the Kennedy assassination. And uh, a book by Peter Janney called Mary's Mosaic uh, is out now in third edition. I worked on the second and third at Peter's request with him. Uh, Worked on some stuff on Oklahoma City. Um, I've been working on a lot of different things that are, some of them reflected on my website briefly at least. I've continued to work on the Don Bowles homicide, still doing some work on that many, many years later, still still discovering some interesting information regarding it. And I'm working on a couple of films. I'm working on a documentary film on the Bowles case and the beginnings of another film on corruption in the Phoenix area generally back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So uh, I'm busy. I'm, I'm, it's very strange. I'm 82. 
and I probably have never been busier in my life than I am <laughs> right now. This is supposed to work the opposite way, isn't it? You're supposed to be yeah. uh, kind of calming down in the, the later years. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm not complaining because I'm not a, a rocking chair kind of guy, but right. I, I had not anticipated being this busy. In fact, I'm probably a little busier than I would like to be. Um, but um, at least it's better than not doing anything at all, so I can't complain. I've had a good time, and um, I'm still pretty active. So uh, these documentaries that you're working on are, are are they are you are is there any kind of like plan to release them maybe on uh, Netflix? The first doc the first documentary which is untitled will be a probably a, uh, roughly a one and a half hour to two hour uh, feature documentary. Hopefully it'll be released next year sometime uh, with a somewhat narrow focus on the Dombles car bombing in 1976 and the convoluted miscarriage of justice that, that followed that. Um, the other film, is, which is a California-based uh, commercial uh, you know, made for, for streaming on HBO or some goddamn thing, I don't know where they're going to go with it, is much more speculative. They're, if they're going to do it, they're going to have to, uh, as investors, you know, raise a lot of money to get it bankrolled. Whether that happens or not, I'm remaining to see, but but um, it'll be interesting to see. But right now, um, a certain amount of my time has been taken up in, in film work. Um, whatever happens with the documentary that's going to be completed this coming year, uh, it'll be available on the web, and it'll, among other things, and all of the outtakes will also be available on my website. Okay. And I and I've done 12 or 15 hours on camera already, just narrative of uh, the Bulls case and. All that stuff will be basically available uh, on my website as as research material for anybody that wants to look at it down the pike. And I'm trying as kind of a bucket list to get as much as I can get done on some of these things while I can and make sure that there is a, a good record left behind. So it's it's a busy time. So just for uh, anybody who's listening to this who may not know what the uh, Balls case is, according to your letter here, um, it just says... Uh, um, there is um, the aftermath of a car bomb of a murder of a Phoenix journalist, Don Bowles. Um, maybe you could uh, just elaborate a little bit on on what that case was. Uh, Don was Don was the victim of a car bombing in 1976 that was carried out uh, because of his work looking for uh, an organized crime connection in the in the Greyhound racing industry in Arizona. Which, and I'm certain that there, there was a connection. And Don had been working for some time trying to establish that. Uh, he was getting close. He was on, on the edge of, of making some major disclosures in that investigation. Uh, he also had a source who was the ex-wife of one of the principals in the dog track business here. And a lot of the motivation to kill Don was, was personal. It was, a, it was anger that he was using this guy's ex-wife as an information source. So there was a certain amount of personal um, aspect to the killing. I mean, somebody put a bomb under Don's crotch and blew him up at high noon in Phoenix. Um, and there was a miscarriage of justice following it. The people that did it were well enough connected that they managed to misdirect the case. And a couple of guys were ultimately prosecuted who had nothing to do with it. Uh, one of them ultimately died in prison, you know, convicted of something he didn't do. The other one ultimately did manage to get himself loose. But it was uh, not the finest hour for the criminal justice system in Arizona. It was a reflection of a great deal of corruption in this town at that time, and uh, uh, both in the killing of Don and then the cover-up and, and, and the, the framing of innocent people to to make it work. So it's a, it was a mess, a really bad situation back in the uh, in the 70s. So the 60s, 70s, and 80s in, in this area were um, an extraordinarily interesting and corrupt and violent time, and uh, fun to work as a journalist, but but. Uh, <laughs> um, not not necessarily a lovely place to live uh, during that period if you had any integrity. It was a, it was a very corrupt situation. Well, yeah, that's kind of how it came off with the Chuck Morgan case as well. It, it, it just kind of seemed like things were being played pretty fast and loose in Arizona as far as you know the things you could get away with. Uh, well, Morgan Morgan was killed just because they suspected he might he might not be a stand-up guy if he got in trouble. Uh, he was killed because they were afraid if he was ever prosecuted, he would talk too much because he knew too much and. It was kind of a it was a kind of a preventive you know <laughs> homicide. He hadn't done anything. Yeah. He hadn't squealed. He hadn't done anything at all. But they were just afraid he might, and kind of got alarmed about it and decided to solve the problem. 
but he was very much involved in, in a money, money, money laundering operation in Tucson for for Joe Bonanno and uh, some other organized crime groups that Bonanno had allowed to use that system. And uh, Morgan was in a position where he could have done a great deal of damage had he ever decided to to um, talk to people about it. But he hadn't made any, any moves like that at the time. Um, but Bonanno was not the kind of guy who took chances, and somebody got alarmed about Morgan, and he was killed. That was in 1977. And, um, uh, and you know, because he was also – what had happened is the mob had been using uh, the – the escrow op operation that Morgan ran in Tucson to not only launder money, but to also uh, handle the, the the gold sales for the mob's access to black market gold that they were stealing from Motorola and other places at that time. And when the CIA began moving money, began moving gold out of Southeast Asia and the Philippines, uh, they took advantage of the of the organized crime. Um, gold refining and illegal sales operation that Bonanno was running out of Tucson. And rather than reinvent the wheel, the CIA simply arranged to to piggyback on top of the organized crime black market gold operation. And uh, so Morgan was involved in that as well as what he was doing with the mob. And uh, But it was the mob that killed him, not the agency. So all of that stuff was, was handled through Arizona. That was the reason because Bonanno already had a well-established machinery for uh, for processing and selling uh, illicit gold in large amounts. And uh, the agency just took advantage of that and made him an offer he couldn't refuse. So, now, there was some there was some detail on the show that I was curious about, and like everybody else was curious about uh, when we talked about it, and uh, there was some detail about um, Chuck Morgan having some $2 bill that was found in his underwear that had some kind of a map, uh, crude map on the back of the two dollar bill. That's true. He had he had a money clip in his shorts that had a two dollar bill in it, and it had uh, drawings on both sides and a map on one side and a bunch of names on the other, and um, and some numbers. And we've never been able to figure out precisely, you know, what that represented. It was obviously uh, very. Kind of code for something. He obviously was yeah. trying to tell some sort of a story. Uh, there may have been a companion piece, uh, a letter that supposedly existed at his house. If so, it disappeared, and uh, no one's ever been able to uh, figure out precisely what that two-dollar bill represented. But it's very graphic. It uh, includes a map of the Tucson border area with Mexico and, and uh, uh, a bunch of Hispanic names and a lot of numbers. And uh, I have no idea to this day precisely what he was doing, but he obviously was trying to leave something behind that would be helpful. And uh, I'm damned if I know uh, what to make of it. Nobody uh, so, can figure it out. Uh, so cryptic, you know. <laughs> it's, you think uh, maybe they would leave, he would leave something more obvious, maybe a letter or something. You know? Well, he, he also told his wife that he had left a letter. And my, my impression is that between the letter and the $2 bill, probably somebody could have, like a book code, they could have figured out what he was doing. Uh, true. But uh, his his house was searched after he was killed by people posing as FBI agents that were not FBI agents. And if there was a letter, I think it got removed. Uh, they went through the house with a fine-tooth comb looking, looking, you know, looking through the pages of all the books on the shelves and everything, obviously looking for a piece of paper. And uh, they may have found it because it never turned up, and that happened within a matter of days after the uh, after the homicide. Wow, it's it's so surreal, like talking to you and actually hearing about these things that actually happened. Because you know, for for us and and our listeners and all, it's like we love hearing about these kind of things because obviously they're intriguing. For me personally, I find them very intriguing and fascinating. But you know, my my life is a million miles away from anything like that. But like you. You, in some parts of your life, were kind of in the thicket of these things, and these things actually were happening around you. Like, were you ever, like, frightened at any point as far as, uh, you know, uh, having people, like, stalking you and hearing about all these cases, these people who you knew or acquainted with, and they were, you know, being kind of... Well, other, other than the fact that somebody may have, may have taken a shot at me, I mean, which didn't work out, yeah. I, really didn't, I really didn't have any, any serious problems. I lost a button in a bar fight once where somebody grabbed my shirt, <laughs> and I lost a button. Um, I had a pickup truck try to run me down in an alley one time when I was coming home shopping late at night, 
and I don't think it intended to hit me. I think it intended to scare me. Um, and over the years, that's about it. I mean, I really have not had a whole lot of, of uh, you know, I've been chased. I've, I've had to, you know, had to had to haul ass to get out of some places on occasion. But I, I haven't been hurt, and I haven't been um, really in any any you know serious kind of confrontations very often with anybody. I never felt most of the time in any kind of jeopardy. And, uh, you know, conducted my business like any other journalist. Uh, I wasn't afraid to go out in the streets at night and go to bars and do what I had to do. But uh, looking back uh, on it now, I may have been a little naive uh, and I may have been lucky. But I think, you know, the biggest thing I can say is that I probably, in all candor, never was that big a threat to anybody. I think I was a nuisance. And I'm almost saying that with regret. Um, yeah, I don't think, by and large, people saw me as anybody who could really cause them that much grief. I was just, a, I was just a, a nuisance, and there were lots of safer and easier ways to deal with a nuisance than to kill him. So I, I think that's probably what kept me uh, from more serious trouble. I mean, I'd like to think I, I could really cause people a lot of grief, but in point of fact, it's often taken me. A, by the time I've really figured stuff out, sometimes, you know, years have gone by. And it's no longer, you know, it's like the gold step. By the time it got on, it was over. Um, yeah, I don't think I've been that much of a of a, of a, of a hassle at this point, I, I'm sorry to say. And uh, so I've been chronicling a lot of stuff that I really was not able to affect. Um, so in that respect, I've almost been more of an historian uh, than, than anybody that was, you know, changing the course of events. And uh, that probably kept me... Alive and well. All right. Well, that's what I was going to say. You're you're alive to uh, tell the story, and uh, you know some of these other people, uh, unfortunately, aren't. So I mean, that's that's definitely uh, a positive thing. I take it as such. I'm happy to be here. So uh, I, I got to ask, um, and I know people would be angry at me if I didn't ask. Uh, so I'm, I'm I'm assuming you actually got to meet Robert Stack and you know, have conversations with them or anything like that? Do you have any kind of stories about Robert Stack or how how well, he was as a person? He's, he's, you know, he seemed like a very nice guy. I only had a couple of occasions to spend any time with him. Um, if you recall the show, there's he used, to, he used to do some of his narrative walking around with a trench coat right. between, a, between a bunch of pillars that looked like they were like he was walking through a, an area of, of uh, architecture of some sort. And uh, we used a church site up in Pasadena, California, for a lot of that uh, shooting of him uh, introducing segments that way, walking around seemingly at night in a trench coat, uh, being a little mysterious. Um, and he had a trailer that he obviously hung out in when he was shooting up there. And I've had a couple occasions to you know, sit in his trailer and drink coffee with him. Um, he was considerably elderly. He looked younger in, in television than he than he than he was in fact. He was not a young man anymore. Right. Uh, but he was uh he was much more translucent in skin and aging in person than he looked like when he was on camera. But he was active and bright and, and uh enjoyed what he was doing, took great pride in the show, uh, along with his role as uh uh that Chicago FBI agent. What Ness, Elliot Ness yeah, on television. Yeah. That was the those were the, the great the great prides of his life were portraying Elliot Ness and and doing unsolved mysteries. Uh back in the days when Stack was uh, sort of talking head for the show, uh, we had about a twenty five percent solve rate on cold cases, which was actually pretty good. Uh we reached, you know, upwards of thirty million people at peak. Uh we had a call in center where you could call in anonymously to a telecenter in Burbank. Right. And and um the first show I did uh, we got like a thousand phone calls, um, which was for me that was extraordinary. I mean, I worked in the print media before that, and I, I might get two or three angry letters, <laughs> but I, I put down a thousand, and and we got a thousand phone calls at the telecenter, hey. and uh, and so we I later learned that from working that I did I did a number of segments with Unsolved Mysteries over about ten years, and uh, about about three percent of the of the phone calls we got were useful. Uh, oh my God! That may, that may not sound like much, but if you get a thousand phone calls, that means thirty thirty working tips. True. Um, yeah, you, true. The point is, you got to go through. You got to go through everything. But if you have the patience to go through the thousand and see what they have to say, 
and you can screen out the ones that are obviously not going anywhere, you'd end up with some useful information. And so we were able to get useful information enough of the time uh, that, as I say, we were running about a 25% solve rate on, on cold cases. Uh, when we aired the show on Wednesday nights, um, the FBI normally had a guy at the telecenter in Burbank because we would always do a couple of, of, um, of one or two items each night about a fugitive who's you know on the run from something. And they would have a bureau agent on the site in case we got a phone call saying where the guy was so they could act on it quickly and catch him while he was still in that motel in Kansas City or something. And so the FBI worked with us very closely on fugitive cases. And uh, we, we were you know, getting a lot done. I was really sorry to see it ultimately go off the air. Yeah, we are too, trust me. That's what we're kinda we're trying, you know, to as this podcast grows, we're really we're really hoping that we can because I've already talked to an assistant from the show and we're we're hoping that they can strike some deal with some online streaming service to put the show back on uh at least on like Netflix or something because uh, the fan base for Unsolved Mysteries is hugely underestimated by uh, well, the, the, the old show. The old shows are still on cable somewhere, as I understand it. Well, it, they did a revamp with Dennis Marina as the host, yeah. and mm-hmm. um, it's it's just not the same show. Uh, no, none of the fans are, are, are enjoy the Dennis Marina Unsolved yeah. Mysteries. Everybody wants the. Well, Robert they're they're Clark. not they're not doing these. These are all old segments. They're just right. revolving yeah, just right. old stuff over and over again. Yeah, I've seen some of that. I mean, occasionally I, I know that that's out there, but uh, I know I, I talked to Terry and John, I, the people that own Cosmere right. Productions, on occasion, and they're they're very anxious if they could ever do it to get the show really, you know, back on the air again with with the capacity for new segments. Uh, they unfortunately don't seem to have been able to get get sponsorship to get that done. That's what I uh, figured. But, they, but they've they've talked about it. You know, they they'd like to. They have no problems with the idea of of reviving the show with essentially the same format. Um, but it was it was quite effective. We we did some really good stuff, and we we had a pretty good I say a good solve rate, and uh, it was a hell of a lot of fun to do it because uh, for me coming from the print media, it was like a kid in a candy shop to get that kind of interaction with an audience where you've got that many people calling in after the show with ideas and information. Um, it was extraordinary. Right. Uh, it was just uh, a lot of fun to go. I used to go out on Wednesday nights and be there when I had a segment on. So I could occasionally take a call myself if it was really a, a oh, productive cool. one, and, and it was uh, it was a, a marvelous uh, uh, way to <laughs> to do journalism. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, um, sounds sounds like it. I mean, you know, but we, it, it changed it changed a lot. What happened in part was that the the networks at that time it ultimately went from NBC to C, to CBS for a year, I think, and mm-hmm. CBS wanted a whole different look. They wanted everything to be young. We had to select young victims, young cops, young journalists. They were they were aiming for like a 17 to 35 age range or some damn thing, and they wanted everything on the show to be young. And uh, they, in the process, they screened out an awful lot of stuff that we otherwise could have done, ah. including me, including me ultimately, because I was getting to be way too old to fit in that mold anymore. So I just quit. Um, and then I think it went off the air at the end of that year, but. Uh, you know the the advertising guys uh, got a hold of it and had a whole different idea of who they wanted to target, and uh, completely you know screwed it up as far as I was concerned. Yeah, that, that's kind of how I felt about the Farina uh, revamp too. They they they're clearly trying to make the unsolved mysteries look like the you know the next uh, CSI or Forensic Files or. You know, they're trying to make it all look young and hip with the, you know, video effects and the quick cuts and the, you know, shortened segments and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we, you know, people, we see through it, you know, it's like we're not, we don't want that, you know, we want the the original stuff. And and I I will never understand the whole, uh, you know, marketing uh, demographic, you know, trying to make it young and all that. It's like the show didn't get successful like that. So why would you? I mean, I don't know. It's like, why would you change it? Why, why fix what isn't broken? You know, I, I, don't I couldn't figure it out either. I mean, the, the show was reaching middle-aged and older people. Uh, you know, that's who that's who had most of the discretionary income back in those days. So I don't know why they weren't attractive as a market. But uh, the show was reaching a lot of people and reaching them quite effectively. But somehow, people got this notion that everything had to be aimed young, 
and uh, it changed the demographics of, of the entire production and uh, I think screwed it up. I don't think Terry and John were happy about that. I think they were just doing what the network insisted that they do. I think this didn't come so much from the production company as it did from the, from the network folks. The, the suits at CBS, I think, were the ones that... Uh, that had this vision that uh, was not, a, I think, a very good one. But I know Terry and John are quite committed to getting it. Have you ever talked to them? They're good people. I, I would love, I would love to talk to those guys. Um, I haven't, I haven't uh, dug dug up their contact info yet. I don't, I don't even know if it's available online. But I would, I would love to. Uh, have I can give, I can give you their phone number if you want it. That would be fantastic. Uh, the two key people are John Cosgrove and a lady named Terry Muir, and um, they've been running it for a long, long time. Um, good, good folks, both of them. Um, I sent them a copy of the letter you sent me with a note I was going to talk to you. So oh, cool! Yeah, they, yeah. they know they know you're out there. Uh, um, I presume they have no problems what you're doing. I would assume they would appreciate the support. Well, I mean, um, you know, what what's happened is uh, in the '90s when me and everybody, you know, all the all of our main listeners when we were kids our parents and grandparents would play the show, mm-hmm. uh, the, the demographic that you were talking about earlier, they would play the show and we would watch it, and mm-hmm. we we all had a fondness for it. And it's not just a nostalgia thing, because if it was a nostalgia thing, there's a lot of bad shows that I would be watching now too. But even yeah. as even as a kid, I, I just knew quality when I saw it. And so all of the kids are grown up now, and we're all in our 20s and 30s, and, and we want to hear about the show. We want to see the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I've, we found, me and my friend Mike, who uh, do the show, we found that that our the, our, the largest demographic for our show is, uh, you know, the 20 to 30-year-olds who are now mm-hmm. grown up. They love the show. So, um, yeah, I'm mm-hmm. Trying to get it out there, and, and hopefully. Well, talk to him. Talk to him sometime. Talk, see if you can. Um, you're, 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 as I recall, you're in Florida. Where are you? Where are you based? I'm not, yeah, I'm out of Jacksonville, Florida. Okay, yeah, so you're a long way from California. Yeah, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you, you try to get a hold of him at some point if you want to talk to him about something. But um, um, yeah, I'm not too sure what you can get done. I mean, they would like to get back on the air themselves, so it's not like they don't want to. Um, but it's just you know finding the finding the the, the sponsorship to. To do the show the way they want to do it uh, is apparently difficult to do right now, and uh, I don't much have much of an understanding of a lot of what's contemporary television. I'm 82, and God knows there's probably 14 generation gaps between me and an awful lot of stuff I'm looking at. <laughs> so I don't watch television much anymore, and um, uh, I'm kind of not involved in it particularly. Um, and I, I don't even own a computer, as a matter of fact. I don't use a cell phone. I, I use a landline and a typewriter and I'm a good sort of 19th century journalist at this point. <laughs> hey, nothing, nothing wrong with that. All that stuff's coming. But it works for me, and I just don't—I don't get involved in all of this uh, stuff. But, but um, you know, they're they're good folks in in uh, in, in Burbank, and and uh, I have very pleasant recollections of the decade or so that we worked closely together during the 90s, and uh, you know, they let me do a lot of interesting stuff. I did a segment on Castellaro and all kinds of stuff with them, and and uh, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. Well, so cool. I'm, yeah, I'm going to try to reach out to them and give them a call. Even if I could just have them on, on the show, uh, I feel like that would be huge for our podcast. I mean, having you uh, is huge in and of itself because uh, we never expected that we would actually get anybody from the show on. You know, we were just talking about the segments and our insights into them, but we never actually thought we'd get people from the show um, on the podcast. So if we could get, you know, the more people we can get, kind of the more we live up to our podcast name, which is Uncovering Unsolved Business. You know, we're kind of digging in deeper sure. to the segments in the show. So, uh, you know, just having them on the show, I think, would drum up more interest. And, I mean, you know, we're yeah. we're just steadily growing more and more um, every week. So uh, so I, I really appreciate you talking. You know, I don't want to take up any more of your time. Um, uh, you said you don't have a computer. I was going to ask if you had an email address and I could send you the... Uh, no, I, I mean, I have a website. I have a website that you've seen, evidently, and I don't even I don't even operate my website. I have a guy that does that for me. Okay. And uh, I mean, I, I I don't even look at my own website. He puts stuff up on occasion that I, I give him to do. But but um, uh, no, I don't. I don't. Among other things, I don't like the, the email is like doing everything with no control over the information. And I don't I don't mind putting stuff on my website that's a finished product. 
I don't like to put work in progress uh, in any electronic format where anybody can look at it. That's true. And, uh, it's just so easy for when you're working homicide cases and organized crime cases and government corruption cases and all that kind of stuff, which I do. Um, I don't want to be uh, infiltrated, if you will, by people monitoring what I'm, how much progress I'm making. And any anybody who you know is a reasonably decent hacker could basically get into my system at any time, probably, and and do that. So I just decided a long time ago I was not going to be vulnerable to uh, uh, any kind of electronic snooping. And uh, um, so I just I just don't. I don't use probably it probably smart given given the work that you've done and the things that you've experienced. <laughs> Well, I also, from a research point of view, it's not important to me. I mean, most of the work I do is is old-fashioned journalism. It's knocking on doors and talking to people, and it's primary research. And it doesn't involve it doesn't involve having to look to see what somebody has already written about it on the internet. So I'm not doing secondary work. I'm doing primary work, and it doesn't require internet at all. So um, yeah, I, I'm I'm perfectly happy uh, being a 19th century uh, kind of guy. Anyway, good luck with what you're doing, and if you have uh, any luck with Terry or John, let me know. Okay. And, um, feel free to use my name and, and encourage him to talk to you. Is there anything that you'd like to plug as far as like a book or anything like that? I remember you were mentioning that book that you had, uh, I mean, is there anything you'd like to plug as far as where people could purchase it or anything that, you know, anything at all like that? Well, I mean, obviously you can go to, you can go to Amazon and probably get it. Uh, I have no idea. I mean, the book called, called Mary's Mosaic by Peter okay. Janney. I'll definitely um, mention that on there. And I worked on a book called Oklahoma City uh, by Roger Charles and uh, Andrew Gumbel, just called Oklahoma City. It came out um, several years back. Uh, worked on that with Roger. Um, so you know, those are both you know, they're both, they're both also mentioned on my website at some point. But we just put the third edition of Mary's Mosaic out about a month ago, and it'll be the last edition. The third is the last edition, and it's probably going to end up as a film. It's been an option now for uh, a Hollywood film. Uh, hopefully, that will happen at some point. Um, it's an interesting tale. It's uh, it's it's kind of a backstory to the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, it sounds very same, yeah. The same people obviously uh, were involved in the decision to kill her as it killed killed the president, yeah. and uh, and that's very very clear. And we've made some headway in working on that case. So. Um, yeah, it's it's all been fun to do, but yeah, this is worth worth looking at. All right, uh, cool. Well, that sounds great. All right, well, stay in touch. Be good. Thank you. Uh, thanks again. I, you know, I just greatly appreciate you. And unfortunately, I had to cut it off because that's where the old music cued in. But we just basically said goodbye to each other. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. This one was awesome for me. I loved talking to Don. 